Well, praise God. Oh, we're so thankful for the children and those who minister to them. And we just, again, had a wonderful week of EBS, and I was so thankful uh, for everything that was done. And I am just so excited this morning with the text, again, of Scripture that we're going to look at both this week and next week. And it's amazing to look at the book of uh, Acts. It's a fascinating book because in it you have so many firsts, don't you? You have the first sermon. You have the first church. You know, you have the first persecution. And it's amazing to look at that even where we are right now because here we see the rise of persecution. Here we see the threat go out from the Sanhedrin. If you continue in this way, if you continue to announce the Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to be repercussions. And we realize that these were the individuals that were responsible for putting Jesus Christ to death. So it's amazing to look at this text that happened to begin right here because a question asked, it has to be asked right after that, what will these believers do? And it's amazing because the answer that comes back is what these believers do is what believers do. What true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, and in the face when others oppose us, what do we do? And the thing that believers do, true, authentic Christianity does, is they identify with Jesus Christ. And how they identify with Jesus Christ is they identify with his body. They identify with other believers. And so once they're threatened with repercussions, with even imprisonment and death themselves, they go to the most dangerous place that happens to be. And that is with other believers. They find out these believers. They find the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what believers do. They congregate together. They identify with Jesus Christ by identifying with the people of God. That's why we're here this morning, right? Right? These are our people. This is our God. That happens to be again above. But not only that, they realize the weakness of their own soul. They realize how much they need Christ. They need their God in all their adversity. So they lift up their hearts in unison to this great God that they might do his known will. That happens to be again in their life. And one of the things I really enjoy about uh, the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is all kinds, not just of uh, sermons, but various different prayers. You know, it's many times called the prayer book of the New Testament because they pray and pray and pray and pray. And one of the things I really enjoy about these prayers is they pray the Old Testament. They pray the scriptures. They pray the known will of God. You know, and that's what we have right here, don't we? We have them praying Psalm chapter 2. You know, why do the heathen rage? And we realize as we look at David's time, and we realize that is a messianic psalm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, of why they're in the predicament that they happen to be in. You know, there's always been this rage against God and his anointed, and it explains it, doesn't it? But it also explains in Psalm chapter 2 who's, who's on the helm of all eternity, who's on the helm of all history. It happens to be our great God that happens to be above. And now we come to the application or the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, which happens to be in verses 27 and 28, which if you happen to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ for any amount of time, you recognize these verses. You recognize them again in the word of God. And what they are, and I, I don't, don't know if you really recognize this, what they are is a prayer of the gospel. All the facets of the gospel, all the people, all the events that happen to be again around the gospel, God ordaining all of these things to come to pass as that perfect sacrifice for sin is basically this. They're praying the gospel. And the question we should ask ourselves is, why would they be praying the gospel at a time like this? 
And let, me, and let me just say, is not only is prayer central, but the gospel central, all the way through the beginning of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? You know, we see the first sermon, right? On the day of Pentecost, they preached the gospel. We see when they heal the man uh, who happened to be lame from, from birth at the gate beautiful, they preached the gospel. We see when they're brought before the Sanhedrin, they preach the gospel. And we see after this warning, when they congregate together, when it's just believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, they pray the gospel back to this great God. And why? And the reason why is because the gospel is the most pertinent, the most necessary message in our lives, regardless of what we are going through in our life. You know, it's the most necessary. You know, it reminds us who we are. It reminds us, again, of the world that we live in. And this is, what, this is why they prayed it back. Because, again, it really described their circumstances. They described what happened to Jesus Christ. And it gave them an understanding of why they're suffering for this opposition. Right? And I think we forget that many times. You know, we forget that, that, that persecution, that rejection, that opposition, that even hatred happened to exist back in David's time, happened to exist in our Savior's time, happened to exist in the Apostles' time, and happened to exist in our time. You know, there's nothing different. You know, Peter even says in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse number 12, and we quoted this verse last time we were together, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you, listen to what he says, share, share Christ's sufferings. Now, how do we share Christ's suffering? Guess the same message, the same reason that Jesus Christ suffers is the same reason we suffer. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It, it, it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So verses 27 and 28 are important because it indicates, again, what the church can face as it preaches the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also important because it gives us an understanding of what the early church believed about the gospel and what we ought to believe about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as far as all of the events that happen to begin around the gospel. I mean, how pertinent and how responsible is man? What's his part to play in all of these events? You know, and when we look at God, what's, what's his part? What's his part to play in all of this? And when you start to look at what the early church believed about all of these things, what happens is we get a greater understanding of the gospel, but what also happens is God grows in our estimation. He becomes more bigger and more glorious and more grand and more magnificent than we ever thought. And when we're going through suffering, when we're going through trials, when we're going through difficulties, when we're going through the things that we never expected to go through in our life, it gives an interpretation. We see the God that happens to be again on the throne. So this Sunday and next Sunday, I'd like to look at verses 27 and 28. You know, and I hope it'll be encouragement in your heart. I hope it'll cause God to grow. I hope, again, it'll give you a clarity as far as the gospel and even all the events that happen to surround the gospel. But one of the things I want to make clear, because it's so easy, we get so lost in this, you know, many times when we look at God's sovereignty, when we look at God's greatness, when we look at the majestic rule of our God that he is enthroned on high and his will is always done, I think something we forget in all of that many times is that humankind, individuals, mankind, is absolutely responsible for every decision that they make. 
You know, they are culpable. And you can certainly see that in verse number 27, because look at what they say. Four is basically, again, uh, taking this, this Psalm chapter 2 and giving the application or giving the fulfillment of it. And it says, for truly in the city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And the thing that makes, and this is what the thing that makes the gospel so pertinent, right? So necessary, is we realize that people are responsible. We are responsible for the things that we do, things that we say, things that we even think before this holy God. You know, and we cannot blame others. We cannot blame the circumstance. We can't even blame God for the things that we do that are sinful, again, that haven't begun in his sight. You know, if that that truth was not true, then so much that happens to be in the word of God would be hard to understand. You know, such as the culmination of all the ages. We read about it in Revelation chapter 20, this fearful judgment that will come. It says, uh, then John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who, who, who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was called the Book of Life. And the dead, listen to what it says, and the dead, out of this book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. I mean, it is amazing, isn't it? To think that everything that we have ever done is written in a book. You know, is remembered before our great God. And the thing that's even amazing about this great judgment is who, who is the person that happens to be on the judgment throne? It's none other than who? King Jesus, isn't it? You know, who has this judgment. And let me tell you, this is a fearful judgment. But this judgment makes absolutely no sense whatsoever unless people are responsible for the things that they do in their life. You know, if they're not responsible, then God, again, is a tyrant. God is not all righteous. God is not all holy. God is not all just. God is not the God that is presented in the word of God. You know, and we see that people are responsible. And this is why it becomes so germane that we, as a congregation, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, announce the gospel message. That's why we have empathy towards people. We have empathy towards the lost. Why? Because we realize ultimately their ultimate eternal destination, which is so much longer than this life. It goes on forever. And therefore, we preach Christ and him crucified, risen from the grave, regardless of what trials, regardless of what opposition we face in this life. We realize this is the only hope. And every single person is culpable, right? Every single person God has given a witness to. It's written right on their hearts. Every single person, whether they know it or not, knows something of the commands that happen to the beginning of God. Every person that happens to be alive knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that murder is wrong, don't they? You you don't have to teach that. You don't have to teach that hatred that rises up in us uh, towards our fellow brother and sister is wrong. Every single person knows that lying's wrong. Every single person knows that lust is wrong. Nobody shares their lust. You know, you should have seen what I was thinking about that that woman. You should have seen what I was thinking about that guy. Why don't they share it? Because they know it's wrong, right? We know that coveting is wrong. We know that all of these things in, right, 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 in the sight of others and before this great God. And let me just say this. There's no such thing as an atheist. 
You know, a person who says, well, I don't believe in God is just suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a law and there has to be a law giver. And here's my point. Every single person is responsible and culpable before God. No one can claim ignorance. You know, and you can see that right in our text that happens to be again right here. And let me just say, uh, just before I read it, one of the things that makes this text so difficult is we realize that people that happen to be again around us can cause so much evil in our life, so much suffering that happens to be again in our life because of their volition, because of them freely choosing to do these things. And you can see this, right? It says, for truly, it talks about in Psalm chapter 2, all the wicked, all the leaders, all the peoples gathered against God and his anointed. And here we have four, right? An explanation of how that came to pass. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And here it is, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And this is a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, isn't it? And let me just say this, because I don't think we think long and hard about this. This is the most despicable, this is the most wicked, this is the most evil act that has ever been perpetrated uh, by humanity. It, 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 is, it is the most grossly sinful act that has ever been done. And it's not saying that no one else in human history has ever been crucified or suffered even a worse death than the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we're, we're, we're not saying that, but what we're saying is there is nobody of infinite glory, of infinite worth, of infinite majesty, such as the God-man, Jesus Christ. There's no one more innocent that happens to be again on planet Earth than Jesus Christ. So what you have here is the most wicked and heinous act that has ever been done. And I think a lot of times what we do is because that sanctification process is going on inside of each one of us, is a lot of times we read back in the Word of God who we are now, and we forget again how wicked our human hearts are. We forget again that we are culpable of so much wickedness, and I think a lot of times we miss the grace of God. Isn't it true? Like, do you see the grace of God even in this text? I mean, I mean it's there. It's so brilliant. Because, again, as the apostles, as Peter and John and the others that haven't been gathered around are praying before this great God, they say this, For truly, in this city were gathered together. Now, think about that. Because it says, for truly, in this city. Now, think about it, because we've made this point before. But what city are they in? It begins with a capital J. It's what? It's Jerusalem. Right? The gospel has not gone out to Judea. It's not gone out to Samaria. It's not gone out to the uttermost parts of the world. It is still in Jerusalem. Right? There's only one church. And it's that church that happens to begin in Jerusalem. Now, just think about what we just said. The most evil and wicked act that has ever been done by humanity was the execution of the Lord Jesus Christ. And where does the first church start? In a place that we would never expect it to start. And in these early chapters that happen to begin of Acts, you read of thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of individuals coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in chapter number six, we'll even read of some of the priests who believed and followed the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's amazing, you know, to recognize that. 
Because I think a lot of times we look at the wickedness of people that happen to be around us and we want to give up on them. But God is so much different. His grace is so much more outstanding. Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. Why won't the Lord come back? Why won't the Lord end everything that happens to be again around us? But is patient towards you. This is why. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I mean, that's the reason, isn't it? Our Lord... Our Lord is patient. Our Lord is long-suffering. Our Lord is gracious. Even to people like us that do not deserve his grace. The other observation that happens to be again in verse number 27, and it says this, they were gathered together. Now think of that. Think of the list that happens to be again right there, because on that list, everyone hates everyone else on that list. And here's the question. How do you get people together that hate one another and do not want anything to do with one another? And here's how. You get them, again, here they are, in a unison of a greater hatred towards something else. Right? Right? That's how you get people together. You know, and you can see this throughout history. Somebody might hide... Uh, hate, hate the certain government uh, uh, system that happens to be again in. And everybody will, will rise up, this faction, this faction, this faction, this faction, this faction, will all rise up against the government. Isn't it true? And he, here they were, they condemned the government, they'll do this. And here are all these bedfellows that would never have anything to do with one another, but they're all going joined together. Let, let me give you a, a modern day ex- uh, example. Our world you know, is very what we would call woke, right? You know, we realize wokeism happens to be, again, all, all around us. And, and, and it's done, done, done in morality. It's many times pushed, right? This and this and this. We talk about Disney. We could talk about Budweiser. We could talk about Target and their wokeism that happens to be, again, right there. You know, and there's a silent, I think, again, um, a majority of people that are against that. They don't want that shoved down their throats. You know, and you can see people many times rising up against that. You know, but here's the amazing thing. The people that are rising up against that would really have nothing to do with one another in, in life. You know, they come from this. They come from Christianity many times. They come from maybe Judaism, again, over here. They might come from the Islam religion. They might come from the Jehovah Witnesses. They might come from the Mormons. They might come from secularism. And they're all together, joined in this wokeism and condemning this wokeism. And let me tell you, I condemn wokeism. You know, it's against the word of God. But let me tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that's not Christianity, right? It's not Christianity. But here's my whole point. How do you get people to be joined together who really despise and hate one another and reject one another? You find something greater that they will hate. And this is what you have in Jesus Christ. If all the factions that happen to begin in the world that are joined against the great God, the true creator God, and is anointed Jesus Christ. And it's amazing to look at this list because none of these individuals would want anything to do with one another. You know, Herod was known as the king of Israel or the king of Judea. And he was just a vassal king. He really didn't have too much uh, power. It uh, It was more of a position 
But when you look at Jesus, Jesus is a threat. Even on the night of his crucifixion, he was brought before Herod. Herod has no intention of letting him go. He just wants him to perform a few miracles, and he's going to send him back to Pilate to be executed anyways. He's not for Jesus. He's against Jesus. And when you look at Pilate, Pilate had scorned the Jews. He had antagonized the Jews all the way through his rulership. He didn't want to be in Palestine. He hated the Jews. But all of a sudden, he realized it was political expedient that he execute Jesus Christ. And so he's joined in this whole motley crew. When you look at the people of Israel, they were the ones, they were the religious leaders who brought uh, Jesus before Pilate. They were the ones who cried out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They were the ones who wanted Barabbas let free rather than Jesus Christ let free. And they wanted to do it because they had their own sense of righteousness. You look at the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are basically the Roman soldiers. You know, and when you look at the Roman soldiers, the Roman soldiers hate the Jews. You know, they put Jesus Christ, they give him a reed, you know, a crown of thorns, they thrust and penetrated his brow, they beat him, and they mockingly worshipped him at this time. Look at your weak king. We hate Jesus and we hate you. And how do you get people to come together? You get people to come together, and they will reject for different reasons. Wokeism, they'll reject again all this, but you look at all the peoples that happen to be in the world, and they're all here. They're all here, represented here before the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. To condemn him, to oppose him. And let me just say this, nothing has changed in our society today. You know, we look at the political um, environment, and it's becoming more tougher and tougher and tougher. My wife and I were talking about this as we were coming in this morning. I think over the next 10 years, there's going to be a real good sign in the church who's a true born-again believer and who's not. And the reason why is because I think we have what's called cultural Christianity. People come out to church because it's comfortable. People come out because they like the morality. People like it because they have the structure. And many times it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And let me tell you again, even in North America, it's going to become tougher and tougher to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and we realize that in the entertainment field, many times Christians, even as we talked a little in the past, are made to look like buffoons. You know, and let me just say this. We think many times because we live such isolated lives that persecution is a thing of the past. You know, it might rise up sometime in the future, but it's a thing of the past. Do you know over the last hundred years there's been more Christian martyrs in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first 1,900 years of church history? It's going on today. Uh, what came across my desk uh, this week was, uh, was uh, what's it called now? Let me, let me get the title. The Voice of the Martyrs. And some of the, the, the uh, top articles that happen to begin in there are about um, uh, John Short, who's detained in North Korea because he's preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an article by Ezra and Saul Pett, who wrestled with their faith because their parents were martyred in Uganda. You know, it talks about, again, uh, Richard and Jeanette found blessings and suffering after being expelled from China. It talks about, again, this lady named Amber who was imprisoned in Tibet. And here's the thing we think many times. We think that this is something of the past, you know, something that's not going on today. And there's real opposition that's going on today. You know, but here's, here's, here's what the scriptures tell us, that there's a day of accountability. 
isn't it? There's a day of accountability where God's people, where Jesus Christ himself will be vindicated and the books will be open. You know, and here's the, here's the thing. God has sent us in this crooked um, a generation to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think of that. If that was the only truth this morning, think how scary it would be to walk out those doors. Think, think how scary it would be to mention Jesus to your neighbor. Think how scary it would be when, if somebody all of a sudden finds out you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and starts asking you questions. It would be a scary world, wouldn't it? But here's the question we have to ask. Who is ultimately responsible for the death, here it is, for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus? And you know, here's an amazing thing about Scripture is that one rises up in the midst of all that to claim responsibility, to claim beyond a shadow of doubt that his ordained will is done. And that's what the early church believed. Because look at our text again that happens to be again right here. In verse number 27, it says, For truly in a city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And then it says this. Listen to what it says. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, let me just say there's a couple of things that we have to keep in note here. And one is, again, even as we've said beyond a shadow of a doubt, that people are culpable. Can God sin? I mean, that's an easy question. In fact, again, if you get that question wrong, you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the answer is absolutely not. You know, and here's a little more difficult question. Can God tempt us to sin? In other words, cause us to sin? And the answer is, it begins with a big N, and the answer is absolutely not. And the reason why we say that is because, again, of what the Word of God teaches. Over in James chapter 1, beginning of verse number 13, it says, Let no one say, when he is tempted, listen to what he can't say, I am being tempted by God. Now, why can't we say that? For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So how does temptation come? How does sin arrive in our life? But each person, there is... a culpability. There's responsibility. But each person is tempted when he is lured. We can feel that in the inside and enticed by his own desires. We have a desire for something. We know it's wrong. We know we shouldn't be thinking about this. We know we shouldn't be desiring, but we're desiring these things. We might even start planning these things because look at how it goes on. Then when desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. In other words, eternal death in the sight of God. So God doesn't tempt any. We are responsible for the things that happen to be in our life, but we realize there's mystery in all this, isn't there? There's great mystery. Because here's the thing that the scriptures teach us beyond a shadow of a doubt. God is absolutely in control of everything. We many times use that word sovereignty. And sovereignty just does not speak that God is ruling. You know, God's on the throne. Right? We speak of the sovereign that happens to be in England. You know, he doesn't decide everything. When we speak of the sovereignty of God, we are speaking that God controls everything. He has an ordained will that comes to pass, and his will always comes to pass. And the reason why we hold that is not to say that there's not mystery in all of that. The reason why we say that is because that is what is taught in the Word of God. I mean, think of Job. Job is an excellent example. Here's this onslaught of Satan, right? 
And when he comes to the end, he realizes beyond a shadow of a doubt, the reason why all of these events have come in his life is because of the will of God. You know, he says in Job chapter 42, verse number 2, I know that you can do what? All things. All things. And listen to what he says. And that no purpose. Purpose speaks of everything that is done. That no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In other words, overthrown. Psalm 115, verse number 3, expresses that absolute will of God again. It says, our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. So when we look at verse number 28, it's teaching none other than the ordained will, the absolute sovereignty of God. And the reason why it's so important, right? Here we have verse number 27. Here we have verse number 28. And the reason why it's so important, because if we didn't have this, this is what we'd say about the cross. The cross, because it was the greatest wicked, the greatest evil act that was ever done, happens to be a triumph of evil and wickedness. But here comes verse number 28. And now we see it's the greatest triumph of God. God's ordained will come to pass. Now, it is confusing, And the reason why it's confusing is because, and this might be hard for some of you to really admit, but God has two wills. Have you ever thought about that? God has two wills. One's called his prescriptive will, or his will of commandments, his will of ordinances. Right? We would call the ordinances, we'd call something like the Ten Commandments. We would call something like the ordinances... Uh, such as baptism, such as the Lord's table. It is what he has ordered, what he has commanded. And we can know the will of God. What should I do in this situation? Well, I open up the word of God, and I see these things that happen to be again written in. I don't have to wonder, is it wrong to lust? Should I lust in this situation? Should I lie in this situation? I know the will of God. That is the will of God. But there's also another will. You know, in this, when, let me just say this about this, uh, this will of ordinance. That's why everyone around the cross is absolutely culpable. They knew it is wrong to murder an innocent man. Whether it happens to be the Gentiles, whether it happens to be the Jews, they all recognize that. But there is another will of God, and that's called a sovereign will. The will, many times it's called his myst, uh, mystery will, his will of ordaining certain events to have and begin come to pass. You know, and here's the hard part, and I want you to hear it, because here we have God's prescriptive will, and here we have God's ordained will, and many times, here, here's the hard part to understand, but the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to this statement, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ makes no sense unless this is true. Here I have his prescriptive will, here I have his ordained will, and many times God ordains what he has not prescribed, and, that, and, and really what he forbids. And let me tell you, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ makes no sense unless that is true. Because the greatest example of that, the highest example of that is the cross, right? The cross you have, the greatest wickedness that happens to again be. And all of it, all of the wickedness, all of the we- evil is planned out by God, yet he is not culpable for any of that because what comes to pass is the absolute free. God's not making them. They're not chess pieces on a chessboard where God's moving. They are making their free choices, and what comes to pass is all of these free and sinful, selfish, 
and wicked choices that they freely do. But we read in verse number 28, it says this, to do, look at those words, to do whatever your hand and plan predestined to take place. Now, when he says to do, what's he talking about? He's talking about everything that was done, to do, and then that's whatever. So when you take in all the events that happen to be again around a cross, God ordained all of them. Every single one of them. He ordained the mocking and scourging, scorning, the rejection of Jesus, the hypocritical and illegal court that took place in the middle of the night so other people couldn't be around, the mock worship of Jesus by the soldiers, the flogging of Jesus, him dying before two thieves. All of that was planned out by God. Even the timing of his death, that it took place when all of the lambs were being slaughtered in Jerusalem at the temple because it was Passover at that time. To the fleeing of all the disciples, to the three denials of Peter, to all the events that led Pilate to fear the Jews. He agitated them for years, and he didn't even want to be in Jerusalem. But he feared Rome more than he feared God. And he chose to execute Jesus, to the choosing of Barabbas rather than releasing Jesus, a known criminal. To all the taunts that happen to be on the cross, when you look at all the wickedness and all the evilness and everything, God says this to do whatever your hand, here it is, and your plan predestined to take place. You know what hand means? Hand means I'm doing this, right? The hand stands for the power to do something, to do whatever your hand, and here it is, your plan predestined. Now think of predestined. Here's a plan, and here I have, and I want it to come to fruition over here. And here, here's what verse number 28 is saying. God has a plan, and he predestines for it to take place. And every iota, every decision, the millions and millions and millions of decisions that needed to be made that led up to the cross, that took place at the cross, God planned all of them. Every single one of them. And we shouldn't be surprised because it's taught in the Old Testament, isn't it? You know, in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 10, it says this. Yes, it was a, it was, and listen to this, because notice in this passage that the will of the Lord is mentioned twice, right? And it, here it is. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And we say, yes, God's will prospers in Jesus' hand. That's why we're here this morning. Look at all the good that he has done. You know, and nobody has, has any problem saying that. The problem that they have is here it is. It was the Lord's will, and it pleased the Lord. To crush him. He, God the Father, has put God the Son to grief. And what came to pass was the will of God. And, you know, when some great travesty happens, when some great evil happens in our world, when people look even back at the cross many times, they would say something like this. No, no, my, my God wouldn't do that. My God's not like that. My God's good. My God's loving. My God's gracious. 
And my God is merciful. He would not do something like that. And let me tell you, if you think God is good, if God is gracious, if God is loving, if God is all merciful, praise God, he is. You know, but I think a lot of times people buy into that because it makes them feel good. It makes them feel good because God wasn't involved in that, that, that suffering in my life. He wasn't involved in this, this event. He wasn't involved in that happens to be over there. But that only goes so far. Because think of it, if God knows everything that's going to take place and he has the power to stop something and chooses not to, is God any less culpable? And the answer is what? You know, if I see all of a sudden, sudden somebody is going to hurt someone else and I have the potential, I have the power to stop that from happening and I choose not to, not to stop it from happening, what would you think? If God sees a loved one going through an intersection and he sees somebody else, you know, fiddling, you know, maybe with a coffee, maybe again with the radio or whatever it happened to be and not paying attention and going through the red light and God knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's going to be an accident and it's going to take away your loved one and he chooses not to do it, chooses not to stop it, what would you think? Right? It, 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 only, it only goes so far. But if I realize God is good, God is loving, God is gracious, God is merciful, and God is sovereign, it, chooses, it changes that whole event. And the greatest example of that is the cross. Because think of what we've said. We've made this point. The greatest evil ever perpetrated by humankind was the cross. Now hear this. The greatest good... The most gracious act ever done by the God of all of eternity was the cross of Christ. And here's the amazing thing about God. Here he takes the evil and wicked acts and make them work. Here it is. For my good and his eternal glory. And he's got the wisdom. He's got the power to do that. Joseph is an excellent example of that. You know, his brothers come and they're fearful for their lives. He said, you meant it for evil. But guess what? But God, here it is, God meant it for good. Right? And we are here this morning because God ordained all of these events to take place. That we would have this great salvation in Jesus Christ. So who determines what comes to pass? You know, who has, who's, who's the prime director, the controller, the great mover of all things? Who, who has established the boundaries of our life? Who, who has established when I would be born, what family I would be born, what siblings I would have, what kind of family upbringing I would have? Who, who has established the day that I shall die, the day that I shall leave this world? And nothing, no medical system, no nothing that happens to be getting around can ever change that appointment. Who's ordained all of that? And the answer is God. And here's, the, and here's the thing. You know, God is sovereign. But here's the thing that makes that such a great truth is God is loving. God is all wise. And his plan, even though I can't figure it out, this side of eternity, I'm living in the midst of that. I can't see behind the curtain of tomorrow. 
You know, and sometimes I'm even fearful of tomorrow, but here's the thing that gives me strength. Here's the thing that will keep the disciples going, preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, is my God is sovereign, my God is good, my God is all-wise and all-loving. And here it is. He can be trusted in whatever I'm going through today, whatever battles I have in my life. Here's the question. Remember we started at the beginning? Why would they ever preach the gospel and pray the gospel to God? Right? Here it is. The gospel makes sense of my eternity. The gospel makes sense of my life in the here and now. I realize he has a plan. And I realize he and he alone can be trusted. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Father, what an amazing text of Scripture. And Lord, there's so much here. When we realize, Lord, that the decisions we make, we cannot just shrug our shoulders and say, God is sovereign. Uh, we cannot just sh- shrug our shoulders, Lord, and, and blame you because you've ordained the events that will come to pass. We realize beyond a shadow of a doubt, Lord, that we are culpable, responsible individuals that you've given us mind, you've given us heart, you've given us will, you've given us the ability to do, to honor you. And we thank you, Lord, that we can really honor you. We can praise you. Lord, we can praise you by the Lord's table. We can praise you because we know your uh, specific will that you've given, Lord, in ordinances and commands. And we thank you so much for that. We thank you, Lord, that we can honor you even this morning by singing praises to you. But God, we realize one of the scary things, Lord, for all of humanity happens to be the curtain of tomorrow. There's not one of us that knows, Lord, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if this same congregation, the same individuals that are sitting here, will be here next week. But God, the glory in all of that is that we know you do. And we know that your plan is perfect. We know your plan is all wise. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your plan is all loving. Lord, and the place that we look to have that assurance is none other than the cross of Jesus Christ. God, just be with us. May we reflect on these truths. And the more that we reflect on these truths, Lord, may our confidence in your gospel grow. And at the same time, our confidence through all of the trials, through all of the opposition in this life, Lord, be in you and you alone. We thank you so much. Just be with us as we close now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother.